0: Coffee. Good evening. Uh, my name is Nick Bratcher. I'm the campus minister for RUF. If it's your first night here, first time trying RUF, I'm glad you're here. Love to meet you, hang out with you, uh, get coffee sometime. But if you've been here before this semester, you know that we've been working our way through the parables of, uh, of Jesus and Luke. It's part of our series, Parables, Simple Stories with Spiritual Significance. Tonight we're looking at Luke 16:19 through 31. It's the parable of the rich man, and Lazarus. Uh, As we do, we're going to notice one of the key themes in this parable is the concept of greatness. Uh, This is an appropriate theme for us to discuss because it's one that every human being wrestles with. We all want to be great, and we make a habit of recognizing greatness, even as a culture. Think about it for a second. We have award shows and like awards for basically everything, Uh, award shows for music, TV, movies, every good sports season ends with the crowning of, of some great champions. And even if you aren't on that team, we have an MVP trophy just to recognize the people who are really good that are on the crappy teams, right? There are whole blogs, uh, research this, there are whole blogs devoted to keeping track of the world's most popular Instagram influencers. Like they have a running count and they like document the drama of like who's surging and who's coming behind. Right, TMZ and things. In that realm, right? followers are indicative of greatness. Even in I would say dating and romance, you may have heard of this show. There's a TV show called The Bachelor uh, and The Bachelorette, right? Where one single person is, identifi- is identified in all of America as being the greatest single person that everyone would date if they could, right? Friedrich Nietzsche, maybe you've heard of him. He's a philosopher. In his own right, uh, he Uh, is famous for declaring that God is dead, but he wrote about greatness in his book, Untimely Meditations. He said this about mankind, that we must work continually at the production of individual great men. That and nothing else is our task, right? Even a devout atheist or believer, it is a truth. Basically, I would argue universally and basically without argument recognized that uh, greatness is at least one goal of the human life. By it, many other pleasures come, right? The comfort of riches, the applause and approval of other people, the safety of power, the significance of a legacy. Being great promises what our hearts really, really desire. But if we agree that greatness is the goal, the question becomes, what does that greatness look like? That's where the disagreement enters the picture, right surely being named the bachelor right is not the same greatness as winning like a Nobel Peace Prize or a Pulitzer right but how do how do you know that how do you judge that like yeah why isn't winning the bachelor just as important or just as uh, impressive or great as doing those other things and the truth is for some people it probably isn't they're like man if I could be a bachelor I'd give up any peace prize Uh, maybe that's you so the question is, right, who decides what greatness is? How will we know when we found it? You've, you've come here to UK. Maybe some of you even in this room tonight are like, I want to be great. The whole point of me coming here, I'm, I left my small town. I left Pikeville, Kentucky or Beaver Dan. That's where I'm from, right? Like some small town. And you said, I'm not going to be like those people back there. I'm going to make something of myself. I'm going to be great. Right? How do you define that? How do you know that you'll have made it? If we're going to orient our lives around this pursuit, we've got to at least know what it is we're chasing. So in our parable tonight, Jesus is going to illustrate the spiritual reality of greatness with a simple story. Uh, He is going to claim that what greatness truly is. Uh, And so that's what we're going to find out. That'll be our big question this evening. As we dive into the passage, what is greatness? What is it? Uh, Let's uh, pray. And then we'll uh, uh, look at the passage. Lord, Lord, uh, I simply ask that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right. So let's dive into our passage discover uh, the answer to the question, what is greatness? Look at me at verses 19 through 22. Let's look at the beginning of the story here. Jesus first depicts an unnamed rich man who is clothed in purple and fine linen. Uh, first off, purple in the ancient world was a very rare color that could only be uh, attained through extreme measures. In fact, you would dive into the sea that was by this ancient city of Tyre in the Mediterranean, and there was a small sea snail there that if you crushed it, it would produce like purple dye. And it was extremely expensive to acquire anything of the color purple for this reason. And this man is clothed in it and fine linen. Uh, In fact, uh, there was a some scientists tried to recreate this, like how many snails you 'd actually have to do and it 's in the thousands to make one handkerchief like a like a like five inch by five inch handkerchief you 'd have to have like gotten thousands of these snails uh, this This phrase therefore it 's not surprising that it 's actually uh, clothed in purple and fine linen is uh, Said over and over again in the Old and New Testaments to denote somebody of like royalty. It's in Proverbs 31, 30, uh, 31, 22 for example, and there it said of a king. Uh, the point that Jesus is making is that this this rich man is so rich that his lifestyle, whether he is or isn't, is kingly, right? That he has the lifestyle, status, the power of a king. Uh, Jesus also provides us with the detail that this rich man. Feasted sumptuously every day. Literally, the the Greek reads that the rich man splendidly was making merry daily. Uh, Not only does the rich man have this kingly lifestyle, right? He's making full use of it, right? He is splendidly making merry every single day. Then in verse 20, Jesus introduces us to a poor man, right? Big about face here. Poor man named Lazarus who is covered with sores. Uh, which seem to be you know, uh, direct contrast with what the man is covered in. Right? He's covered with fine linen. Uh, Lazarus is covered with sores. Uh, Lazarus, we were told, is placed outside the gate to the rich man's house and longed to, long to eat literally any of the things that fall from the table of the rich man, which also tells us that these banquets that the rich man is having, it, they're so sumptuous and so big that the crumbs could feed a man. Right, that he's sitting there longing to eat them. Right, Uh, if you couldn't really even see them, why is he longing to eat them? Like, like they're leaving these scraps behind so much, and there's so much of them that he longs to go in and actually eat the eat the stuff that's just falling on the floor because there's so much of it. On top of this, dogs. And for the record, not you might think like, oh yeah, I like nice dogs. They come over and lick the his sores or whatever. No, 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 no. These are not your house pet dogs. They don't have. This is the ancient Near East. They don't have pet dogs. These are wild dogs that roam the street where Lazarus is living in, and they lick his sores. When the poor man dies to add insult to injury, Jesus notes that there is no one to bury him, no one to bury him. He's simply carried up to Abraham's side by the angels. The rich man, by contrast, receives a funeral. What do we need to make of this initial scene? these two polar opposite men? well, at least gives us the answer to our our first question. What is greatness? What is Jesus putting before us as what could be a model of greatness? On earth, I would say, right, the way that uh, Jesus puts it on earth before they get to the next scene on earth is pleasure and it is power, right? Uh, That's the first answer to our question. On earth, greatness is pleasure, being able to eat and enjoy life, to, to give yourself whatever you want, and it's power to... Uh, to get all those things and to not have to worry about ever having those pleasures uh, impended upon. Now, here's the problem. Here's the problem. A pursuit of one's own greatness inevitably hurts others. It does in this parable, right? Hoarding pleasure and power blinds the rich man to the plight of, of this man named Lazarus. Uh, and, it, and it always does this. When I worked at a summer camp called uh, Camp Timberlake for Boys in Black Mountain, North Carolina, Uh, We played this game called Commando, which is essentially like a giant water balloon fight. And you get points for taking the water balloon, running it across this field... And then busting it on the body or, you know, the face, uh, head, neck area of a, uh, of like one of the 16 year old boys at the camp. And they had these like paddles and they would try and swat it down. But you would go like in a hundred and like throw it at them and you like tally it up. You get three points for hitting them in the head and then, or, or sorry, the body. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> like, um, don't worry, I didn't hit them all on the head. That's, that's me. And I hit most of them in the head because I tried, but i um, just kidding. Um, Somebody might be listening to this later. I did, we did not punish our kids that way. Okay, so, um, like, right, you're at this camp. We're playing this game, and there's this, the objective game, you bust the thing. But see, the thing is, like, some of the kids at the camp are, like, seven years old, right? So when they throw a water balloon, what does it do? It, like, hits the person and then, like, bounces off. And if you're lucky, right, it doesn't even break on the ground. Uh, and so I get this smart idea, you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to stand behind, like, we run out of balloons. I'm going to stand behind them throwing the throwing the balloons, and I'm just going to dive on one of these balloons that, like, doesn't bust, right? And I'll protect it. And the thing about that is, like, people are, like, if somebody is throwing 100 water balloons at you, you tend to move around. And then the water tends to get, like, you know, concentrated in one area, gets muddy. And so essentially what ends up happening is my head just gets, like, crushed into the like they're just stepping on me but it's fine right because i end up with this balloon and with this balloon i think okay this is our chance right these are three points that were supposed to go to the other team but now I can come to our team let's let's get it together i give it to the smallest kid in camp and i say okay listen i'm going to run across the field what I need you to do is run the opposite direction because they're going to they know that I have this balloon. So when I give it to you, they're going to come follow me, and then I need you to just run the other way around and then bust it on one of the guys. Can you do that? And he's like, you got it. I, I'm, I'm your man. I'm like, yeah, you got it. Okay. So we all break out, and we're running across the field. Now, the way that you stop somebody with a balloon is you hit them with a, with a pair of socks, right? There's these two kids who are like eight years old. You have to be the youngest kid at camp. You hit them with a pair of socks and then they have to bust the balloon on the ground, right? And so if you don't have a balloon, there's nothing to be, you, there's nothing to happen. And so I'm running across. They, of course, come right at me and he throws the sock at me, hits me square in the chest. And I like show him like, no balloon. <laughs> I got you. And, uh, and then I'm like, yeah. So I, And I turn around and like I'm hoping to see this little kid run across the field and like, bust it on one of the older guys. But what do, you, what do I actually see, right? Coming like, right behind me is Paul, the little kid that I got. He's coming like, right behind me. And the kid looks at me. He like, threw the sock and then looks at Paul and like, looks at me and looks at Paul. And at this point, like, Paul like, thinks he's like, go, like, home free. So he's like holding up the balloons. He's like, oh, I got it, guys. I'm going to get him. I'm like, oh, my gosh, you're ruining this plan. And so what ends up happening is, uh, I see the sock. We look at each other. The, this kid called a Stinger, right? He's like throwing the sock at me. We look at each other. We look at the sock. We look at each other. We look at the sock. We look at each other. And I just decide, without hesitating, right? I take this sock and I just punt. it. Like just, it goes clear over the mountain. Like it's just gone out of sight. So- I just, I just punted it. And uh, and of course, you know, Paul comes streaking past, hits the guy. We get three points. Everyone's cheering. I'm like, I am the man. My plan worked. I'm the best. And I look over, and I'm just about to be like in your face, and then I notice that the kid is just bawling, like just weeping, like you kicked my so. And I'm like, oh, I have done a thing. I've done a very bad thing. Right now, here's here's what I here's what I'm talking about with this. Right, this is what we are like in our in our in our quest for pleasure and power. We get so focused on doing what will be best for us that we forget all about the little kid who threw, who's like there to throw his socks and we become sock kickers, right? Uh, you know, in what way, right? The question is, in what way are you kicking socks? In what way might you be like this blind man who is blind or this rich man who is blind to others' pain? Now, here's, the, here's a principle at work in this passage that makes us hard to answer, uh if you were aware of the pain you were causing, you'd probably stop. Right? But the whole premise is that pursuing our own greatness, it makes us blind to the damage that we cause. Right? While he's alive, the rich man doesn't think anything about Lazarus. He's on the outside. So you have to ask yourself, where are you pursuing your own greatness? You can't ask where you're causing harm. You don't know. Right? You're probably blind to it. it, it, it uh, and and I'll say this too: like it's probably not in getting rich. Maybe it is. Right because you 're you know all poor college kids it 's probably not that you 're like hoarding a, a mound of money, but there are other things that you can pursue this this power and this pleasure with right uh, that become your treasure, become your main focus. It could be a boyfriend or girlfriend like just trying to maintain somebody of the opposite sex to think that you 're enough that you 're pretty enough, that you 're funny enough, that you 're cool enough, that can also be friends, right just trying to have the approval of your friend group uh, it can be. Um, uh, oh, man, the, uh, this is ubiquitous on a college campus, uh, and this is guys and girls alike. Uh, porn is literally just this on steroids, right? In the world of porn, every, whoever you want will look at you and tell you you're amazing, right? They'll look straight through a screen, and they'll tell you everything about you is the most wonderful thing ever. Do they know who you are? No. You don't know who they are, but for a moment, you can believe it right convince yourself that like oh these people are performing these acts for me like i'm amazing this is all for me everybody exists for my pleasure and you think nothing at all again about the person behind that lens right or even worse right what it's doing to you to think uh of yourself as being like the existing for other people's pleasure right uh or for sorry other people existing for your pleasure Um, this can also happen, right? It doesn't have to be a sexual way. Like maybe you want to be great. I said this earlier. Uh, you say like, I'm going to be intelligent. Not like those people back home, those backwards hillbillies that I came from. Right. Uh, maybe you want to be great because you're going to have intellect. You're going to be somebody. I'm not going back there. I'm not working in the mine. I'm not doing whatever. Like I'm not, I'm not working at the Dairy Queen back home. I'm better than that. Right. And so you dismiss other people like what their needs are, because you've got to get your grades. You've got to get your internships. You've got to be somebody important. Right. <coughs> dismiss other people who maybe you even look down at other people who aren't in, uh, intelligent. Right. Like they're not worth your time. Everybody's beneath you. It's not here doing the important stuff. Uh, Maybe you even want to be great in the eyes of others, so you choose like you can choose grades, but you can also choose other people over grades, right? Like maybe right now you're here because you're getting uh, you don't want to be left out. You want everybody to approve of you, and meanwhile, like you're getting straight Fs in all your classes, right? And you you don't want to you don't want to face that uh, because as long as you're here and everybody likes you, that's that's good enough. That's the real power. That's that's the pleasure you want the pursuit of our own greatness, right? The truth is it's ultimately a selfish endeavor. And when you make greatness your goal, people are always going to become obstacles to your greatness, right? Because uh, what you really love is not other people, you love yourself. So then how do we get the greatness we desire, right? Because the truth is, I, even with all that, you're not going to leave here and be like, oh, well, then I guess I don't care about being great anymore. No, you, it's in there. Like you are hardwired to want something to be significant. How do we deal with that? Well, look with me at verses 23 to 25. The story keeps going. Once in hell, the rich man has come to terms uh, with the life he has lived, right? Justice is served as the rich man is sent to a place of torment uh, to the point that he asks for just a drop of water from Lazarus's finger to cool his tongue amid the flames. Uh, you gotta, you, you gotta appreciate the irony that Jesus is making here, right? That uh, now it's uh, the scraps from Lazarus's finger, right? That the rich man is begging for now, right? Uh, perfect poetic justice, and Abraham is pictured there conversing with uh, the rich man, as uh, the patriarch of Israel. He's an appropriate character, of course. Uh, when we talk about these simple stories, these parables, Jesus isn't saying like all this stuff actually happens. He's uh, asking you to imagine what it's like uh, to be uh, – he's telling a simple story to contra- convey something true. And so obviously uh, you know this hasn't actually happened where there's like Abraham talking and stuff, but uh, he's a good character because it's the most obvious person for all the Jewish people. They're like, well, if anybody made it into heaven, it's got to be Abraham because the Bible tells us that he had faith and God reckoned him as righteousness, so we shouldn't press this parable too far to think that Abraham is able to talk to people in hell any more than anyone else. Uh, you know, even he says, like, Lazarus can't come talk to you, but Abraham can. Uh, don't press it too far. But but Jesus puts on the lips of Abraham how perfect God's justice is. Look at verse 25. After the rich man's request for, for water, Abraham responds, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in, uh, in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. What he's saying is the script for greatness has been flipped in heaven. In heaven, the weak are made strong. The poor are made rich. The lowly are made great. This is our second answer to the question, what is greatness? In heaven, right, it's poverty and it's powerlessness. Right In heaven, it's poverty and it's powerlessness. On earth, it's pleasure and power. In heaven, it's poverty and powerlessness. And, and should this really surprise us? Right When you think about it, this, is, this, seems, this probably should seem obvious. The king of all things is a crucified savior, claims the Bible. Could have been born in a palace as a prince in some important city and instead born in a manger as a peasant in a nowhere town on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. Could have been Uh, King over all the earth, forced everyone into submission, had that power, but never traveled over a hundred mile radius from his home uh, region of Galilee and was constantly misunderstood by everybody, abandoned by his friends. Could have given all of us the punishment that this rich man receives uh, like we deserve and instead receives that punishment into himself as he takes upon the body of sin that this world has accumulated and is crucified as a sacrifice for our sin. In all this humiliation Jesus endured, he was being made perfect, according to Hebrews 2, and is now exalted at the right hand of God. Right That he, that he uh, was being made perfect. That's not to say that Jesus was, uh, like, wasn't like lacked something or anything like that. It's to say that like, he was acquiring all the more greatness through all the things that he suffered. The reality of God's kingdom is the more you let go of your own greatness, the more you find it. And, and like the thing is, we know that this is actually how greatness works deep down, don't we? Uh, if you've ever seen the TV show Ted Lasso, which if you haven't, man, you've got to watch it. But there's this one – yeah, that's right. I'm the campus minister talking about Ted Lasso again. It's really good, and you, it's your fault if you haven't watched it yet. Uh, there's, this see, there's this scene in season one where Ted Lasso uh, goes out with this guy named Ted, uh, Trent Krim. He's a journalist, and he's really suspicious of Ted. Uh, because Ted has come from Kansas, has never played soccer before, and is now going to be like the head of a Premier League football club, and uh, and the guys ask him all sorts of questions about like, do you even know what an offsides is? Do you know all this stuff? And and he's like, I don't know. You know it when you see it. You know. He just kind of like brushing everything off. And Trent's really angry because he's like a really big fan of the club and really wants it to do well. So he goes out and he gives this big expose, and he's like, gonna, he's trying to like, he's going to just rake Ted Lasso over the coals and tell everybody about what a fraud he is. And as he spends the day with Ted, Ted just like relentlessly just loves Trent Crim, right? He like answers all of his questions. He's like really nice to everybody. He goes to a school and like uh, gets a bloody nose where a kid like kicks a soccer ball like straight into his face. And he's like, oh, it's all right. Kids are gonna be kids. You know, he just kind of like takes everything in stride and just doesn't care about being important or being great. And instead cares about loving the people around him. So much so that at the end of the scene, at the end of the day when they've spent the day together, he goes to this Thai restaurant, and in order to make the guy his waiter feel good, and his parents who own this actually, I don't think it's Thai, I think it's Ethiopian. Um they go to this, they go to this place and uh like he orders like the hottest thing on the menu because the guy recommends it. He's like, Yeah, make it like I'm one of the family. And they literally, Trent can't eat it because he's crying. And and Ted's like we gotta eat it. The guy's gonna feel bad if we don't eat it. And he just keeps eating because he wants this guy to know that he's cared for, right? Now Ted's a fictional character. We find out in season two the whole thing's a coping mechanism, which makes sense for a character like a like Ted who doesn't know Jesus. But the principle at play is a beautiful one, right? Albeit cartoonish without Christ in the picture. No one lives like Ted, but Jesus did. Right. When we place our faith in Jesus, we know that everything we need is provided for and we can give away our power, deny ourselves pleasure for the sake of other people. Right. We don't have to use everybody. Nobody has to to meet those things that we that we want. We don't have to be blind to other people's pain. We can instead give up our own pursuits for pleasure and power. Because God's opinion of us, his plan for us, his mercy, it's all grace to us. We don't have to go take it from other people. They're gifts to us that we don't deserve. And when we accept them, we allow ourselves to love other people more than ourselves. Right? In other words, the way up the ladder of greatness is down in Christ. Now, so far, uh, I've ignored a major point of this parable. And it's almost as if Jesus notices it too. Uh, if people really knew that greatness works like this, right? Okay, Nick, yeah, we're supposed to be selfless people. Uh, this is what all religion says, that we're supposed to be selfless people. Uh, nobody's shocked by this. If people really knew greatness worked like that, if they were warned about the severe consequences of their sin that's found in this parable, wouldn't we all behave differently? right? If, if we really believed what, I just, what I've been saying, that like, it's a fool's errand, that you're just going to use people, all that stuff, Like, why would we do anything else? Probably all of us feel the weight of the consequences of the rich man's selfishness and trust in himself and his own greatness, right? He is pictured as being in some very real agony. Uh, if, if God could somehow show people that this is where they're going to end up apart from Christ, then they would believe. They wouldn't act like that. They, w- they would trust Jesus for the righteousness and stop trying to earn it from other people. In fact, some of us might even feel it's unfair that God has made this situation uh you know, so less obvious that like more people should know that this is, that this is what's going to happen. Our friends and family who aren't believers, like they, we don't want them to end up in a place like this. But look with me at verses 27 through 31, the last bit of the parable. We can notice a few things about this rich man's situation. First, you'll notice that he never once asks to, to come to heaven, right? Where Lazarus and Abraham are with God, right? He asks for Lazarus to come to him and quench his thirst right? Because he still thinks Lazarus serves at his beck and call. And he asks to go warn his brothers, but he never desires to go be with God. This tells us something about the nature of the human condition, right? In Romans 1, Paul describes God's judgment as an act of God giving people over to their own desires, that that is in and of itself judgment. Uh, The great poet of our age, Tyler Childers, some of you may have heard of him, Uh, He writes about his own view of heaven. He says this, if I can't take my dogs to heaven and if I can't hunt on God's land, I'd rather load my dog box up and go to hell with all my friends. It's tongue in cheek, right? But the principle at work for Tyler is that if he can't do what he wants to do, in this case, it's hunt with his dogs, which I don't think God would have a problem with, but that's neither here nor there, then he'd rather not go at all. He would rather go to hell than be with God. Now, I don't think God would object to you know, the hunting, as I said, but our pursuit of pleasure and power, he certainly will. That's why he's telling this parable, right? And this is a judgment in and of itself. God will eventually say to all of humanity, if you'd like to pursue your own pleasure, if you would like to do your own thing, right, you are free to do so. He'll no longer reign in sin uh, with common grace. He'll no, He'll no longer keep everyone from hurting each other. He will let hell take over. Right? There will be a place where all those people go and all the people who want to be left with money and power and significance and greatness and clamor over it and protect it and hoard it, they can have it. They can have it. And that will be their plight for all eternity, hoarding and, and taking care of number one. Unless we think this is unfair, like Taylor says, uh, these people, uh, and I think Jesus is even claiming this, they wouldn't want to be in heaven with, where Jesus is Lord anyways. Now, that's not to say that there's not a real physical hell that is a place of torment. The Bible speaks of hell as a real place. In Revelation 20, those those who are judged as not being in Christ are cast into a lake of fire at the very end. I would spare you all that. Jesus would too, which is why he is telling you this parable. But we have to also admit that that even that is an appropriate punishment for people who rebelled against God in their bodies, not just their spirits. Part of the reason why we think hell should just be some sort of ethereal place is because we don't think of our own bodies as mattering or being significant, but what you do in your body does matter. It matters to God because he created it. And so it can't just be like a spiritual punishment. It has to punish all of you because God wants all of you to get exactly what you wanted. The worst judgment God can pass on uh, to a person is to give them the independence they desire from him, to ring everyone for all that they're worth for all eternity. But a second more important reality that can be observed at the end of this parable is this. Namely, God has already made this upside-down kingdom greatness so obvious to a watching world, right? Lazarus, uh, or the rich man says, like, oh, man, my brothers, if only they knew... And uh, Jesus, through the, through the lips of Abraham, says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. God has given us his word, acted in human history, and expects us to believe it. Right? The Old Testament over and over tells us the same story that humanity has rebelled against God, that God has graciously given us himself, loves us in various ways, even though we have tried to fix it on our own, we can't. And that starting with a promise made to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, through the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, through a calling of the people to himself in, at Sinai in Exodus 19 through 24, God is pursuing a people, pursuing wandering, lost people who are power hungry and pleasure thirsty. So it is, uh, you know, God has already communicated the gospel clearly in his words and actions. And Abraham says that if someone is going to ignore that revelation, then it wouldn't even matter if he sent somebody from the dead. And of course, Jesus is saying this a little tongue-in-cheek, right? At this point, in verse 31, if you want to look there, at the end, of the, very end of the parable, we know that Jesus is clearly referring to himself, right? What will take place in a few short chapters, that he will die in our place uh, for all of our pleasure-hungry, pleasure-seeking, power-hungry deeds, and he will put himself in the stead of us so that we can have life and that we will, he will actually ultimately even be raised from the dead. And that happened in human history. And he's saying, if you don't believe that, then it won't matter what I say. Right? These things go hand in hand, really. Uh, because to acknowledge Jesus' resurrection is kind of to acknowledge his lordship over all things. You're not going to do that if you can't also acknowledge his word. And this is our final answer to our question, what is greatness? Well, it's Jesus. Right, what is greatness? It's Jesus. On earth, it's pleasure and power. In the eyes of God, it's poverty and powerlessness. And as Jesus is the epitome of that kind of greatness, and he gives up all that greatness for us, he is worthy of our worship and love. Uh, this is why we obey God. This is why we listen to Moses. Uh, you, if you've been here in RUF, you might think like, wow, this is like a really like, do the right things, don't do this, do this. What I'm saying is uh, that Jesus has invited us through this parable. To see God for who he is and to not chase after things that aren't going to be good for us. And instead to take him for his word, to believe the resurrection, believe someone who has come back from the dead, and know that that is the pursuit that's worth pursuing. Uh, Whether you've been a Christian your whole life or whether it's, you know, you're considering it for the first time tonight, that is something to hold on to, right? To to drink deeply of. Uh, Let's pray. Lord, I do.